The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Better, thank you, Tom. And yourself? Good, Father. Thanks for being here. We're happy to have you back just recently back in town from the uh, ordinations up in Round Top, New York. We have two new priests, uh, members of the Society or the Congregation of St. Pius V, and you were actually at the uh, ceremonies, Father. How, how were Well, you? unfortunately, Tom, when I, uh, I did arrive at Round Top for the Tuesday ceremonies, but uh, I took ill and uh, was not able to attend the ceremonies okay. or, the or the festivities afterwards, unfortunately. I was very disappointed, but uh, it was clear that it was not meant to be. Uh, I do appreciate all of the concern for the people who were there, very kind of them. They're uh, very dear souls, but uh, we all do rejoice at the ordination of two very fine new priests, uh, Father Matthew Wilder and Father Michael Martin, who are ordained, and uh, God grant them many years of service in his honor. And for his glory, for the salvation of souls, uh, we have had both of these fine uh, Catholic gentlemen uh, down to Immaculate Conception Academy to assist with days of recollection for our students. And our students uh, think very highly of them. And uh, so I, I know that uh, they made a very fine beginning and they will be excellent priests. So okay. I ask everyone to keep them in your prayers, please. And I know they will certainly be praying for you, too. They've, they've always been very uh, supportive of the program. They've been very encouraging, what Catholics believe. And uh, who knows, maybe in the future, uh, they might even somehow find a place at the table. <laughs> I'd really like to have them aboard. Definitely. Well, Father, I wanted to uh, to mention this. We uh, Just yesterday, I believe, there was a... Uh, Rather humorous, in a, in a way, humorous headline. Uh, it's from CBS News that says, Pope Francis says it's an honor to be criticized by Catholic conservatives in the U.S. So, Father, could you give us any kind of little update on uh, on Francis and, and how he's doing? Well, you said it was a, a little amusing, and there were people who were somewhat amused by it, but I think their amusement was uh, matched with a certain irritation and even wonderment that... Uh, Someone, you know, considered a, a pontiff of the Catholic Church would single out a nationality and uh, single out even a, a, well, if you want to call it a, a conservatism, you know, a political leaning, uh, saying it would be, he would be honored or is honored to know that he is criticized by them. And, uh, you know, this is a man considered to be the vicar of Christ on earth by so many. Um, and uh, I would just ask them, well, where did we ever find our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel? Even 
saying such a thing, uh, ever saying about such a, such a thing about even the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Uh, it's an honor to be criticized by them. You know, this is a feather in my cap that I consider, to, uh, I consider myself honored to be uh, disliked or hated by the Pharisees. Our Lord never said anything like that. It's not recorded in the gospel, certainly, and it's inconceivable that he would. So, um, you know, again, this is a man who um, not only has no filter, but uh, when he speaks candidly, when he speaks off script, he's really revealing what is in his heart. And what is in his heart is not Catholicism. It is not the Catholic faith. Uh, what is in his heart is a radical leftist agenda. And, um, I mean, that statement would be more fitting coming out of the mouth of a Barack Obama or a Joseph Biden or a Nancy Pelosi or a Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, who was a Hillary Clinton talked about the vast right-wing conspiracy that was out to get her and her husband. So, um, this is, uh, again, I mean, for those of us who have come to face the reality with regard to Francis, this is not surprising that he would think this way, but it is surprising that someone could be so incircumspect and so imprudent as to actually come out and say this while he's wearing a white cassock, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, appearing in the balcony as, as, uh, as, as, a, as a pope expected to be recognized as a pope of the Roman Catholic Church and a vicar of Christ on earth. It's, it's certainly unworthy of that. By the way, this came uh, roughly at the same time that Francis uh, nominated 13 new cardinals, right? Mm -hmm. Three of them are, are honorary. They're 80 years old or above, so they will have no, no input on the choice of Francis's successor. Nice. And... Uh, but uh, 10 of them will. And the 10 men he chose to, uh, as his cardinals, to add to his collection, uh, actually put him over the, uh, the halfway mark. I mean, he's chosen more than half of the men who are now uh, sporting red hats, you know, and are going to vote in the next conclave to choose Francis as successor. And uh, these men, again, are uniquely qualified to choose a successor of Francis because they all share his radical leftist views on everything and his anti-Catholic views on everything. Um, so they're all modernists, but they're, they're also modernists who are very, uh, very corrupt and they promote corruption. They glory in corruption, right? They glory in the very kinds of things that Catholics are ashamed of. And so um, it's it's kind of, it's interesting to see the results of this or the reaction to this. Uh, the Novus Ordo conservatives are bewailing the fact that now Francis has pretty much stacked the deck to choose a radical successor to Francis. You know, you might ask them, well, what did they expect? Of course, I mean, this is what they, the modernists have been doing since they got John the Twenty Third in there. That's exactly what they did. They changed the rules for the elections of pontiffs, right? And uh, that's how they got Paul VI, and that's how they got uh, John Paul II. They, they changed the rules. And um, so now that they've got control, they've tightened the rules up a, bit, a, a little bit uh, because now they have control and they want to tighten the rules against any so-called conservatives 
again, having any, any real influence in the outcome of the conclaves. But in any case, uh, Tom, we, we, um, should, as we agreed, limit our Francis reflections to five minutes. We should have the, the five minute Francis and move on to talk about the Catholic faith. Um, but it is important to keep an eye on this as you would keep an eye on a storm, right? More closely than they're keeping an eye on Dorian or the other storms coming behind him. We need to keep an eye on, on Hurricane Francis or Tornado Francis because there you find the essence of modernism. There you find modernism incarnate. And it's, it's extremely important for those. Many good people out there still have the Catholic faith, but they don't know what to do about it because they're being held in check by Francis. They feel that they can't move. They can't breathe without him and his okay. And there are even many of those who want to practice the traditional Catholic faith, but they want to do it within the Novus Ordo because they feel that they have to, absolutely have to have Francis's approval to do it. That's how sad things have become for people in terms of those who still have the faith, but don't know what to do, you know, in order to really practice the Catholic faith. So uh, it's important that uh, we observe what's going on and comment on what's going on with Francis in the hopes that eventually they'll realize that they're being held in bondage by, uh, by the modernists and that they will break the modernist chains and simply come back to practicing the traditional faith in its integrity. Well, Father, one, one last thing I thought it was rather fascinating in regards to the 13 new cardinals that, that Francis has, has appointed. Um, there was an article on the FSSPX news website, mm-hmm. and they kind of go through and do a, a profile of, of the cardinals and say how they're, they're so uh, liberal, leftist, radical, progressive, and all of that. And then towards the end of the article, they say that uh, all of these all of these characters will soon be princes of the church, mm-hmm. and they say that uh, one must wonder what kind of pope would elect cardinals like this. I think if perhaps the society answered that question themselves, mm-hmm. I think that that could um, that could solve a lot of problems. Okay. One must wonder. So they're still at the wondering stage, I guess so. but they're not able to actually answer the question. I guess not. That's how that's how the article is ended. This with, is with that question. So this does not help. You know, let's, let's sit around and wonder what kind of pope. Let's let's think about that for a minute. What kind of pope would actually choose men like this? Okay, and uh, of course the next question would be: one must also wonder what kind of pope these men will choose. Right, that's the next step. That's where everybody else is right now. <laughs> They're not asking. That's interesting. The conservative the conservative Novus Ordo sites are not asking what kind of pope would choose such men as his cardinals. They're not asking that. They've already answered that question for themselves. But the Society of St. Pius X is still wondering <laughs> what, what, what the answer to that question might be. Well, I hope that eventually they'll find, it, find the answer and that they can move on to the question of, well, what, what kind of pope would these men choose? And could he even be a Catholic pope? He may be a successor of Francis. But would he be a successor of Peter, who is the vicar of Christ on earth? That's, that's the, really the question. That's the question they really should be answering right now. Right. Well, Father, let us return to our email inbox. We had a great email that we began last week um, from a viewer who listed 
some Protestant objections from a family member of his. And so I'd like to go through a few more of these, if we could. And there are uh, several here concerning the sacrament of baptism. And so one of the points here says that the Greek word baptizo means to submerge. The church's practices of baptism by aspersion and infusion contradict this meaning. So to hide this fact, instead of translating the word as submerge, they simply made up a new word, baptize. How would you answer that objection, Father? It's, it's not really an objection at all. It's it's nonsense, really. Because um, the the signification of baptism, and remember, baptism is a sacrament. Uh, a sacrament is an outward, outward sign instituted by Jesus Christ to give grace. So as an outward sign, okay, you have the water and you have the water flowing, right? Uh, were people submerged in the water to be baptized in the early days, as John the Baptist was doing, <clears throat> before our Lord instituted the sacrament of baptism? Remember, as John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance, and that's all he could do, is bring people to repentance. But only our Lord Jesus Christ could provide for us a sacrament, which was a sacrament of baptism of forgiveness of justification, because only our Lord Jesus Christ could pay the price of our redemption. So there's a difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of our Lord, a huge difference, like night and day. Um, but when our Lord instituted the sacrament of baptism and ordered, ordered the apostles to go out through the entire world and baptize the nations in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, our Lord did not specify necessarily the immersion. Um, and the church understood that. The church thoroughly understood what our Lord intended by that. In the New Testament, we find that baptism, as St. Paul says, symbolizes burial unto death of the old man. And then the resurrection, when the person is drawn out of the water in which he was submerged, as the new man, okay? born of grace. And this is all very, very good and very Catholic. And uh, But the church also recognized the signification of the purification or the washing of the soul, the washing of the soul from sin. And that doesn't necessarily involve immersion. And so the church's teaching has been that as long as the water flows over the body, <clears throat> that that is the necessary proximate matter for baptism, the actual flowing of the water over the body. <laughs> so um, when there became many, many conversions, uh, the, uh, the church uh, saw the pouring of the water as perfectly acceptable in its signification, or even the sprinkling of large numbers of people as long as the water flowed notably over the head, right? they would see that as an adequate expression of that idea of the cleansing of the soul. So uh, we have from sacred scripture itself that twofold significance, the cleansing of the soul from sin, right? and the idea of burial and resurrection. And so th there's, no, there's no problem at all with uh, any of those means, as long as the water flows, it flows immersion, infusion, or aspersion. Um, so, in, anyway, it's, it's an artificial argument. 
sort of like the argument uh, that came up last time when we talked about the Petros, Petros, the Greek, uh, the, uh, inferring pebble, right? And uh, it, you know, in context of what our Lord actually said, it clearly does not form any argument, any valid argument against what Catholics believe. Mm-hmm. Well, Father, what about infant baptism? The next point here says that infant baptism is not biblical because the Bible says that you must believe, repent, and be baptized. But the Catholic Church does this uh, backwards. So they say an infant, an infant cannot believe or repent, so it is contradictory to baptize them. Uh, well, in one place it does it does say that, yeah, but... It, but Remember, that is being addressed to adults, okay? Those words were addressed to adults. They're not being addressed to children. So that leaves the question, well, can children be baptized or not? And if they cannot have faith and cannot be baptized, then how can children even be saved if they die in the state of childhood, right? But again, you know, people who make these arguments pick and choose. That's the very meaning of heresy, pick and choose. So they they go into the scriptures and they mine the scriptures looking for an argument. And they come away and they take something entirely out of context. And they say, well, okay, this is my entire argument contained in these three three verses of the Bible. But, you know, they don't look at the the entire scripture. For example, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, you're familiar with the dream that St. Peter had when he was sleeping on the rooftop, right? And um, this dream of the giant sheet being let down from heaven and, and the sheet containing animals, both clean and unclean animals. Of course, the Jews were forbidden to eat of the unclean animals. But the voice came from heaven to St. Peter in his dream, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, God forbid that I should eat anything unclean. And the answer came, do not thou call unclean what God has cleansed. Okay, and three times that happened. And then the knock on the door down below, the emissary from a Roman centurion named Cornelius came to the door asking St. Peter to come right away to the home of this Roman centurion, which Peter did. He actually entered the door and entered the home of a Roman, peg, of a Roman centurion who was a pagan soldier which was forbidden to the Jews to do. And there he preached the gospel to that family. And the Acts of the Apostles tells us that the entire household was baptized. Not just Cornelius and his wife, not just the adults, the entire household. Well, the entire household would include not only Cornelius and his wife and his children, but even the members of the slaves who were members of the family, servants, and their children too. They were all considered part of the family, the extended family. So there are instances of this going back in the earliest days of the church, and they were inspired by the Holy Ghost. So if someone wants to make an argument against against infant baptism, they will find themselves arguing against the Holy Ghost as he guided the church through the earliest centuries of, of, the, of its existence, you know. Um, so their argument is not actually with us because we're following the tradition of the church in what we're doing in uh, seeing the baptism of a child. I mean, th- those who deny this actually are creating all kinds of problems, faith problems, theological problems. For example, 
if what is needed to be saved is repentance, then if children are in fact brought into the world in the state of original sin, they need to repent too, but they're incapable of it. If they need faith to be saved, they are incapable of that. So they cannot be saved, they cannot be baptized, because they cannot be re repent or have faith, is what she's saying there, right? Well, if they can't have any of these things, then how are they saved? The only way she could justify this is say, well, well, they're not really affected by original sin. That's the only way, because they don't have anything to repent of, right? So maybe she's going to say, okay, when they reach the age of reason, they can commit sins, and that's, that's the sin they need to repent of. And for that, they need faith. But until that time, until they commit their own personal sin, they don't have original sin. Well, if she wants to argue the question of original sin, well, then she has to argue with St. Paul. In Adam, all have sinned, he says, right? And he takes, speaks very clearly of the sin of Adam as affecting the entire human race, right? <clears throat> the church understands that. So if her argument really comes down to a question of whether there's original sin or not, Upon that, then, hangs the question of whether children can have faith, repent, be, be baptized. And if she believes in original sin, their answer would have to be, well, actually, no, right? Can't be baptized because they can't repent, can't have faith, and they can't be saved. Now, you know, maybe maybe they'll come up with some other argument somewhere along the line to say, but, 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 but what about this? But the fact is that again, whenever they raise an issue like this, which is a false issue, they always create problems for themselves. And you point them out. You say, well, wait a minute. So what you're really saying is that either there is no such thing as original sin, in which all of us were conceived, or uh, th that there isn't original sin. But if there is original sin, then you're saying children cannot be baptized because they can't have faith and can't have repentance. So are you, are you telling me thereby they can't be saved? You know, the questioning should go be turned back on them because... The implications of what they're saying are so contrary, not only to what we believe, contrary even to what they believe, the implications of what they're saying, but certainly contrary to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel and the Holy Ghost through the tradition of the church. Okay. The fact is the church was baptizing children mm -hmm. uh, in the earliest days. Well, that's the sacrament of baptism, Father. What about the sacrament of penance? They also say that uh, only Jesus can forgive sin. Men, such as priests, have no power to do so. If you go to confession to a priest, he will just give you some sort of penance to say, such as ten Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys. And this is uh, just external and, and material, and God only cares about interior repentance. Mm -hmm. Men do not have the power to forgive sins. How would you answer that? Well... Uh, that is actually quoting the enemies of Christ. In saying that, the person is actually quoting the enemies of Christ. There's a passage of the gospel where the our Lord was in the home preaching, and the home was filled with people. So when they brought a paralytic on a stretcher, they couldn't get him through the door, so they tore tiles off the roof and lowered him through the roof of the house next to our Lord. And our Lord turned to the paralytic and said, Take courage, son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Well, who was it who murmured, who murmured against our Lord? How can he say that only God can forgive sins? Who was it who said that? It was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, our Lord's enemies, objected, right? And our Lord, knowing their thoughts, said to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or arise and walk. You know, our Lord, of course, performed the miracle. Now, the modernists, 
In fact, the modernist I had teaching me at the Angelicum, New Testament scripture, flatly denied that this ever happened. He said that the story was invented by the early faith community under the guy, under the direction of the spirit, he said, but it's not true. It never happened. He said it was fabricated and they brought together a teaching that they had the power to forgive sins and they fabricated a miracle called the kerygma. They brought the kerygma, the, the work of power, the miracle, together with the didache, the teaching, in order for the early faith community, he said, to justify their claim to forgive sins. Now, this lady might actually agree with the modernists in that regard, that she might actually fully agree, if it is a lady, fully agree with what, what he was saying. Um, but the fact is, those of us who believe in sacred scripture and that it's divinely uh, inspired by God and has come down to us th through the work of the Holy Ghost. So we have the actual scriptures. And uh, we Catholics especially, I mean, I should say exclusively in the sense that we have an authority, we believe in an authority given to us by Christ to see that the scriptures are kept free of error. Protestants don't have that. They have none of that, right? They have no authority on earth at this time to guarantee to them that anything in their scriptures really correspond to what was really said or meant, right? It's a matter of interpretation, matter of translation, matter of editing, printing, and all the rest, right? Um, that all enters into it, and they're all subject to human error. But in any case, um, but we Catholics believe in the inspiration of the guidance of the Holy Ghost to see to it that we have the scriptures in their integrity, even in translation. But, uh, Tom, the, the point being here with regard to uh, the objection that she gives. Again, this all comes back to just singling something out from sacred scripture and ignoring everything else that might so that she's wrong. If you had a prosecuting attorney, you could get away with that. Say, I'm going to focus on every single thing that would point to the guilt of this man and ignore everything else. And I'm going to keep all the other information aside. That would not be a fair trial, right? That's what they did to our Lord. Exactly what she's doing. Okay. But the fact is, the defense attorney is there to bring the exculpatory evidence and say, well, wait a minute. No, you know, you're misinterpreting that. There's another side to that story. There's more to this. And we always have to have to look at the, 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 the attackers of our faith as like these prosecuting attorneys who are out to get a conviction no matter what. But even they are bound by law to provide evidence that they have that would argue for, uh, for innocence, right? The trouble is they're not honest enough to do that. <clears throat> if she were here, it, it is a she, I, I keep calling it uh, her because often it is, you know, making these arguments. Uh, although men have done that too. Um, I would say, well, do you believe in the gospel according to St. John? And of course, he or she would say, well, yes, I believe the gospel according to St. John. And I'd say, do you think that chapter 20 of the gospel of St. John is true? And she might say, well, I don't know about your Catholic Bible, but in my, my Protestant Bible it is. And I'd say, well, which one are you talking about? There are hundreds of different <laughs> translations of your Protestant Bibles, everything from the King James to the pocket, to the hip pocket Bible. I mean, what are we talking about here? But anyway, that's another issue. 
so let's say we could finally agree on a text. <laughs> okay, and what does it say in the Gospel according to St. John? I might even ask you, okay, do you have a King James Version there? Pick it out, open it up, St. John chapter 20. The sad part is she'd probably be able to go right to it, whereas many of our Catholic people would be hard-pressed to go right to it because they wouldn't be familiar with it enough. That's the sad part. But if they if they were able to 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 know where to go, they could they could actually any of our laymen, you or anyone else, could say to her, "Well, go to chapter twenty of Saint John's Gospel and go to chapters verses nineteen, twenty, twenty-one. What do you read?" And she would start reading about our Lord appearing to his apostles the night of the resurrection, the very night of the resurrection. He appeared to them. They were in the upper room, and um, our Lord. Um, says to them, peace be to you. Okay, very reassuring greeting from our Lord, of course. And um, they were afraid because they thought he might be a specter. And uh, he, showed, he showed them that his hands and his feet, he showed them the wounds in his body. And there was no mistaking those credentials. You know, they apply to our Lord and to our Lord alone. These heavenly credentials of divine love. So, then our Lord repeated the words, peace be to you, and he breathed on them. He had breath. In that body, he had breath. And he said, receive the Holy Ghost. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. And he didn't stop there. Whose sins you, are for, you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. So he didn't only give them the power to forgive. He gave them the power of discretion to decide not to forgive. That's a tremendous power. And uh, at the Last Supper, our Lord had transubstantiated the bread and wine into his own body and blood, and then commanded the priests, commanded the apostles as priests to do what he had done. But he did not say there, who sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Only after he had consummated the sacrifice on Calvary would he say to them, now forgive, who sins you shall forgive. Uh, because the sacrifice of redemption had been accomplished. Now, one looks at that statement of our Lord, and one sees how encompassing it is. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Which is kind of an interesting time sequence, too. Whose sins you shall forgive. I don't think our Lord said, they shall be forgiven. But the, the very fact that they would be forgiven by the apostles, our Lord considers them forgiven, even in the present tense, right? Whose sins you shall retain, they, he didn't say shall be retained, they are retained, right? That's a quite a, quite a, an amazing statement by our Lord. And you have to ask uh, Protestants who deny the fact that our Lord gave that power to mere mortal men. You have to ask them, well, how on earth can they interpret that otherwise? And they will come up with all kinds of convoluted explanations. Some even come up with the idea, well, Jesus gave that power to his apostles, but only to them. And when they died, it died with them. So, you know, that was the end of it. When St. John died, finally, at the ripe old age, whatever it was, about 100 years old, that was the end of that power that Christ gave. Now everybody has to go directly to him. They can't go to any apostles because they all died. Now you ask them for evidence of that. And they have none. It's just their own thought that it had to be that way, right? It can't be true that the apostles actually received that power from Christ 
and actually gave it to others who they ordained to carry on the powers of Christ in the world. In other words, um, when they tried to account for their for their storyline and all this, they they get into quicksand, and they, they, they start saying very foolish things. As though our Lord gave the power of forgiving sins only to his apostles and during their lifetimes, and then it was over. Uh, then after that, you know, the idea of the church having that power, received that power from Christ, and the church carrying that on, they won't accept that. But it's a matter of their own willfulness. It's a matter not of faith, but what they are willing to accept, what they're willing to believe. That's the issue here. Well, Father, just one more, uh, one more point here, one more objection before we move on from this. This is a very, very familiar objection that you hear from Protestants where uh, she says essentially that the Catholic Church is the modern-day version of the Pharisees where we are overly concerned with the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law because the Catholic Church has all of its rules and regulations and canon law and law after law, and they say that Jesus looks at the heart and spirit of a man, not outward laws. So how would you reply to that? Well, the church was established by our Lord Jesus Christ as a visible society. It's not just a secret underground brotherhood. You know? Just kind of an amorphous mass of nice people. You know, Some would like it to be that way. You know, But actually, uh, our Lord founded his church upon right, himself, his incarnation, and then he did, in fact, select apostles. He did. He selected apostles. One of them he gave the command to feed my lambs and feed my sheep, right? So our Lord actually established a hierarchy within the apostles and told them to go out into the whole world and preach the gospel. But he also, our Lord also told them at the same time to baptize. And our Lord also told them to teach the mankind to observe what our Lord himself had commanded the apostles. Our Lord had rules. God always had rules, right? Some of them are sown into our human nature. Others were given to us on divine positive commands of command commandments, right? God gave Moses commands, okay, as far as the temple worship, the eventual temple, temple worship, and so on. And so God is a God of order, and this is what order means, right? Order involves rules. You know, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you not to do, okay? There's nothing contradictory between that and anything that is truly of God. Satan is, is, wants to be a, an, an anti-God of disorder. And that's what sin is. Sin is a disorder in the human will to love more than God, love creatures more than God. That's what sin is. So, um, in any case, the, um, the fact is our Lord did include in his command to his apostles that they would teach mankind to observe what he had commanded them. So our Lord does have commandments. And St. Paul, you know, talking about the old law, does not deny there is a new law. But the new law of Christ, which he, which he tells us about, is not just a law of be nice to each other. It's not that at all, you know. Uh, St. Paul actually gives a discourse on charity, talks about faith and hope and charity all being necessary, but talks about charity being the greatest, so much so, in fact, that he says that without charity, even faith enough to move mountains would not be anything, be nothing. 
He also says the greatest ass of self-denial, giving our, all of our goods away to feed the poor and delivering our body to be burned in martyrdom without charity would be, would be worth nothing in the eyes of God. So what this dear person is saying here is that God regards that charity in the heart of the person who is acting to do what is right and good. But to turn that around and say, therefore, the charity is all that matters and following the rules doesn't. Well, then why would our Lord say repeatedly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? What does our Lord mean? In light of what she's saying, what does it mean? It means nothing. Time and time again in the New Testament, our Lord is saying at the Last Supper, for example, he says this two or three times, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. St. John says that too in his epistles. It's a matter of love. Obeying the commandments of God is a matter of love. Now, it would be very, very foolhardy and actually contradictory to say, okay, so all we have to do is love and we don't have to follow the commandments. But that's not what St. Augustine said. He said, if you love God, you will. You will keep it. You don't need a law because the, the law of your love for God itself will govern you and rule you and will determine what you do. So you don't need an external law. The love for God in your soul will be your law. He's not saying you can do what you want. He says, love God and do what you please. <clears throat> well, if what you please is what pleases God, yes, right? But that only applies to those who have perfect love for God. We know that, okay? To parlay that into a denial of having to follow certain laws and commandments if you're going to belong to any society, there have to be certain laws and certain commandments that we follow. Just human nature in the church that Christ established. That's understandable. I, I take it this, this, this lady is not an anarchist, but I, I tell you that her arguments could be used by anarchists to justify just about anything. As long as you mean well, you can do anything you want. Okay, just That's all God cares about. Just mean well and do whatever you want. But that's not what Christ said. He's talking about charity. St. Paul says perfect charity or perfect love for God casts out all fear. Otherwise, we do have yet work to be done in our souls, and that is the work of wisdom, the work of divine love. We need laws and we need rules. It's interesting to note when St. Paul talks about the law, and how the law cannot justify. He's actually referring to the Old Testament law of the Jews. He's saying that law is not the law that you follow to justify yourselves. He's not denying the existence of all law. He's not denying the importance of all law. But then he talks about the law of Christ. St. Paul does. He talks about the law of Christ. But even there, he said if a law was given, that could justify from sin and sanctify the human soul, then justification would not be by grace. It would be by following the law. So even when he talks about the law of Christ, he's even pointing out that just following the commands in a, in a very, let's shall we say, mechanical sort of way, with the idea, I'm going to sanctify myself by observing the... But the eight Beatitudes. I'm going to follow the eight Beatitudes. I'm going to become perfect. Right? I'm going to observe all the commandments of God. I'm going to become perfect. Well, I mean, a Freemason could say the same thing. I'm going to perfect myself. 
even following the law of Christ, to the letter, it's still the letter of the law, if it's not motivated by love. This is what St. Paul is saying. And, um, you know, ultimately this dear soul has to come to realize that. To say that the motivation behind obedience to the law of Christ is really all that matters, that's not true. That's not the teaching of Christ in the gospel. That's turning it upside down, actually, and inside out. The point is that, yes, we do have the laws of Christ. We do have his commands. And if we love him, we will keep his commandments. But we're not sanctifying ourselves by keeping the commandments as though we are the ones who are making ourselves holy. It is the love that motivates us to keep the commandments that will sanctify the soul. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? So when, when St. Paul says, charity is kind, charity is patient, charity is this, charity is that, charity is that. And again, he, what he's saying is the charity involved in doing all those things and practicing all those virtues that makes them pleasing in the eyes of God. That's what will save the soul. I, I hope that's clear. I mean, it, it's a it's a conundrum. It's it's a uh, problem that people have manufactured. Um, but uh, the fact is that. Well, I'll, let me give you an example. Okay, just one final example of this because it refers back to something that was said earlier. Okay. <clears throat> we Catholics believe that children's souls can be saved. We believe in original sin. We believe we're all conceived with original sin. That we've all contracted, as it were, uh, the, the, the spiritual disease or the calamity of Adam in his sin, right? So we are not conceived in grace. We are conceived in sin. But we believe that little children can receive the grace of God in baptism because they have souls. They don't have the physical apparatus, as it were. They don't have the brain and the experience of life to actually enable them to think and, and act in a, in a rational way. But they do have rational souls that kind of, as it will, grow into that age of reason and so on. And those souls can be sanctified by Christ, even before they reach the age of reason, by the power of baptism. Okay, Christ is the one, our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who do, does that, justifies that soul for original sin, and sanctifies that soul by sanctifying grace, just as, just as you might say our Lord did with the, with St. John the Baptist and the womb of his own mother, right? Before he was born, before he had the power of faith or repentance, he leaped for joy in the womb of his mother, right? Who would deny that power to God? who would deny the power to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. What, what merits does a three-week-old child have when that child is baptized? What merits does that child have? None. None. Child had no repentance actively, had no um, active charity, had no faith, no hope or charity active in the soul, right? Could make no deliberate act of love for God and the use of the will, no merits whatsoever. Has the child ever obeyed a law of God? No. But we say that that child is saved 
with no merits of his own, purely and simply on the basis of the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, how does that coincide with what she's accusing the church of here? And saying that the church says you have to follow all these laws to be saved. But we believe that little children who can't follow any laws are saved if they're baptized by the merits of Jesus Christ. So clearly, I mean, one thing, one time she's accusing us of uh, baptizing babies, which we shouldn't be doing. And the next minute she's saying, yeah, but then you say you can't be saved unless you follow all these laws. You know, so again, when they accuse the church of these things, they're not even aware of their own contradicting themselves in their accusations. But, for example, I baptized a man at, when he was 102 years old. Okay. Uh, the next week he received his first Holy Communion, and he died. Okay. What merits, supernatural merits, did he have during all those 102 years that he lived without baptism? No. Um, it was only that he, he came to faith, the grace of faith, at the end of his life. And hope. And charity. And out of faith, hope, and charity, he was baptized. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And um, so God regarded the faith and the hope. And God gave him the grace of faith, hope, and charity. He regarded the grace of faith, hope, and charity in that man. Right? If he had been baptized and he rejected faith, what would have been two of his baptism? Would his baptism have been valid? No. No. He had to have faith, hope, and charity to be baptized, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, to be validly baptized, even. Okay. So, but the fact is, if you, if you ask, okay, this man had gone through his entire life, he wasn't following the old law, he wasn't really necessarily following the new law, at least not of a supernatural motive of love for our Lord. And so he appeared before the judgment seat of God, newly baptized. The merits of Christ are his. What merits does he have of his own, except for the fact that he accepted by a valid baptism the merits of Jesus Christ? So he didn't go through life following all these rules, as though that saved him. This is the teaching of the church, though. So what this person is saying is not true. The church doesn't teach that we're saved by following a bunch of rules. It never did that. It has always rejected that idea. Uh, it, it believes exactly what's, what St. Paul the Apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Okay? That we, we are saved by faith and hope and charity, the graces of God working in the soul, through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Redeemer. No one can earn salvation. No one can even earn the grace of final perseverance. Even if he's led a life of virtue, you cannot earn the next grace. That's a free gift from God. All you can do is remove the, the obstacles to it and dispose your heart to receive it. But it's a free gift of God. That's the church's teaching. Father, what you're saying reminds me very much of what St. Francis de Sales has written in regards to prayer, where he uh, he, he gives an outline of, of types of prayer and the way how there are affections and resolutions and considerations and all this, and he lays out the order in which they, they take place. But he says that, that many souls will often get so hung up on this order that if they feel drawn to place, say, their, their affections before their considerations or kind of mix the order up that they... They, they can't handle that, whereas they should follow that. Um, you know, if they're drawn to make their affections at a certain mm -hmm. point, they should do that. But he also 
makes the distinction that says how important that order is. And he, he gives the example of a, uh, of a priest praying the divine office and how at that time, since he is obligated by law to, to pray the divine office, that uh, he cannot just freely follow whichever method he wants. He has a very straightforward way in which he must pray the divine office. So that seems to perfectly coincide with what you're saying about, mm. you know, kind of balancing. And what the church's mind is on that, because the church's mind is to pray the divine office, not just say it. I mean, one can mechanically fulfill the letter of the law by saying the words, okay? And when you're praying the divine office, Tom, you're, you're praying public prayer. So you have to actually pronounce the words. You just can't take an Evelyn Wood speed reading course and then just rapidly, you know, scan the pages. You have to actually pronounce the words. It's a public act of prayer. But prayer involves not only our attention, but our affection, giving our mind and our heart to God. That's the meaning of prayer. So the church says, well, okay, you can fulfill the letter of the law by saying all these words. But if your mind and your heart aren't in it, it is not pleasing to God. Right? That is what is necessary for uh, to for any act, including praying the divine office, to be pleasing to God. Uh, and that is that it, that it be true prayer with devoting our attention and our affection, our love, our love to God. So this is what the church teaches. If you, if anybody wants to know, finally, if anyone wants to know, what does the Catholic Church be, me, teach about morality and salvation? I would just tell him, well, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The first epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 13. Read verses 1 to 13. That's the entire chapter. Read it, and you will know the essence of the church's teaching on morality and what is necessary for the salvation of the soul. And if you have a problem with that, then your problem is not with the Catholic Church. Your problem is with divine revelation. Mm -hmm. Well, Father, I think this has been very helpful and beneficial. All of these uh, objections that were raised here, I think they're all, uh, we've probably all heard them before multiple times. Um, I don't think there's anything that new or, or surprising there, but I think it's That's very true. helpful to to go through these and actually have a good, ready response to give to these. So thank you. Well, I hope I hope it helps. Too. Mm -hmm. There are others who've answered these questions many times and answered them better, but these questions are here now, so... And <laughs> Uh, I'm here, and you're here, so we do our best, right? right. By the grace of God, yeah. hopefully. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. I appreciate your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Yeah. God bless you. And uh, I ask our viewers to continue your prayers, please, for dear souls who passed away. All of our supporters of what Catholics believe, and in particular, our uh, dear, dear friend, uh, Gerard Kennedy and his family. Uh, Gerard died of fairly young age, his early 50s, and totally unexpectedly in an accident. Please keep him, his soul in your prayers, and also his dear wife and children in your prayers. I thank you for that. Definitely. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and also to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.